So I'm going to begin this morning uh, with some highlights from my English language GCSE. And now that I've got you all right on the edge of your seats, uh, I'll kick off with this. You'd be surprised how much it costs to look this cheap. A line from Dolly Parton. Another. A politician at the opening of a brand new hospital was quoted as saying, Welcome to our new multi-million pound hospital. You're never going to get better. (laughs) These are examples of oxymorons, a highlight of my English language, GCSE. An oxymoron is a really, really stupid person who went to Oxford University. (laughs) Really. An oxymoron is a figure of speech that seems to contradict itself. And today's text appears to fall into that category. Blessed or blessed are those who mourn, or as some have translated it, happy are the sad. So this is the uh, second in our series on the Beatitudes. This is just a little bit of context. It's the second in our series on the Beatitudes, which are a group of sayings uh, right at the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount may have been a one-off event, uh, but we know from Jesus' teaching that firstly, this was authoritative. And we know that by the fact that it says that he sat down and sitting was a sign of teaching authority in the ancient world. And secondly, we know from the tense of the verb that is used that this was what Jesus continually taught to his inner circle. So it wasn't just a one-off sermon in the sense of the content of the teaching. It was what he taught regularly, is what he used to teach them again and again. So we should pay particular attention to what Jesus is saying here on the basis of its authority, he sat to teach, and the fact that this is what he taught regularly. He taught it again and again and again. So if the Son of God comes to earth and he tells us something, and this is what he teaches regularly, then we should listen to this. The word beatitude itself means blessed or happy are they that. And the Greek word that's used is makarios, which means a serene or untouchable joy. And the first beatitude, which David considered last week, is blessed are the poor in spirit. And what this means is blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead. And today we're going to focus specifically on the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this follows on from last week, in that Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritually poor, that they are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead, and they mourn over it. Blessed are those who are desperately sorry for that spiritual state. For they will be comforted. So the big question that we have all got to ask ourselves this morning is, 
Are we truly sorry for our sin? Do we really mourn over it? Now, sometimes when we consider why we are sorry, we realize that we're sorry just because we got caught. Or we're sorry for the consequence of the sin on us because we got caught. We're not really sorry for what we did, just the fact that we got caught doing it. And this is not what Jesus is talking about here. But it might also be worth asking ourselves is, what if we don't get caught? Or if we don't think there's going to be any consequences on us? Are we really sorry for that sin? What about the sin that nobody sees? What are we like when nobody is looking? What are we like in private? Do we mourn over our pride? Do we mourn over our jealousy? Do we mourn over our impure or malicious thoughts? Do we mourn when we, when we refuse to forgive others or we bear grudges? Do we mourn when we look down on others? Do we mourn over the time that we waste that nobody sees? Do we mourn over what we watch on television or our internet browsing history? Do we really mourn the sin that we think no one sees? Do we mourn our private sin? One of the biggest mistakes that we make when we think about sin is that we limit it to what we did, the action, the deed, the wrong that we committed. But these things are just indicators of a greater problem. These deeds or actions are the symptoms of an underlying disease, a disease of the heart. And the Bible makes it absolutely clear that God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the text we are considering today is from the Sermon on the Mount. And nowhere is this point emphasized more clearly that when it comes to sin, God looks at the heart rather than just the deed. I find this, this diagram helpful. And what it shows is that usually we split our behavior uh, into two categories, good and bad. But what Jesus is saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that God doesn't just look at what you do. He also considers your thoughts. So it's your thoughts and your actions that we need to think, are they good and bad? And not only is it our thoughts and our actions, but he looks at our motives. The reason for these thoughts and actions. So when we maybe thought that we were being good, by Jesus' standard, we were not necessarily being good at all. We may think that we are good just because we do not commit adultery. But Jesus says that if we have lusted after someone and entertained those thoughts, then we are guilty of adultery in our hearts. And I may pride myself in being faithful to my wife, but by Jesus' standards, I know that I have committed adultery in my heart. Do I really mourn this? 
Or do I just say to myself, that is normal? We may think that we are good because we do not murder. But Jesus makes it clear that if we get unjustifiably angry, then we are under the same judgment as murder. Now, doing a sermon in front of my family, there is no hiding place. They have seen me get unjustifiably angry. So I know a few minutes into the sermon, I'm not really off to a very good start. And there are many, many examples of this throughout the Bible. Right at the start of the Bible, think of Cain. Cain is seen to be the bad guy, but he actually brings a sacrifice to God. You would think on the outside that was good. But the problem with his sacrifice was it wasn't a priority. And God was not happy with it. We may think we are good, but Jesus makes it clear that in reality the bar is so high, no one is able to live up to the standard of pure righteousness and holiness expected by God. We need to understand the problem from God's perspective. He is the judge. We may think that we are good, but all the time God looks at our hearts And he says, you do not even come close. Many people think they're okay. They think that they are, for the most part, good people. Yes, they may do bad things from time to time. But in their minds, the good outweighs the bad. They measure their performance like weighing up scales. And they think if the good outweighs the bad, then I'll be all right. And they've not taken the time to actually consider what the marking scheme is. Now, when I was in school, I was given a physics homework. Uh, The requirement was to do some detailed calculations and provide the results in kilograms. And I spent hours doing this homework. But for some reason, I forgot to include the kilogram unit of measurement in my answers. I just put down the number. And And although mathematically I got all the calculations correct the teacher gave me zero in the homework and I was mad, I was really really cross, all that time of effort, all that time and effort correct calculations and nothing to show for it and the teacher simply pointed to the requirement to display the answer in kilograms and he asked me where I had shown this in my homework and he said is this number milligrams is it tons I don't know. So I had my idea of how the homework should be marked. It was different to what the teacher was looking for. He said the homework clearly asked for the unit of measurement to be displayed. I had failed to do that. It was his opinion that mattered, not mine. And many people measure their behavior like an examination, like an, or like an examination result. If I get 60%, I'll be okay. Or in terms of scales, if the good outweighs the bad, then God will let me into heaven. They don't take the time to think whether this is the way that God looks at it. And a better way to understand this is to look at it in terms of a relationship. God looks at our hearts in terms of a relationship. Do we really love him? Are we faithful? And this is a relationship and we have been unfaithful to God. We consistently put ourselves first. We are proud. 
We trust in our own strength. We are selfish. We think we know best. And it's not like an exam. It's like a marriage. It's no use me saying to my wife, I am faithful to you 60% of the time. Aren't I good? It's ridiculous. She wants me to be completely faithful. And if I am unfaithful, the relationship is broken. God wants us to be completely faithful. And we are not faithful. Certainly not by the standard he has set. We're not faithful in our hearts and we fall short of his standards. The relationship has been broken and we have been separated from him. We are estranged from God. And do we really, really mourn over this? And what the Sermon on the Mount shows us is that God's standards are much higher than we may ever have thought they were. Verse 48, the final verse of chapter 5, contains the standard by which God measures us. And Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard. And we are certainly not perfect. The verdict is in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If this is news to you, that we fall short of God's standards, then you really need to take time to think about the implications. Your eternity depends on it. It's highly, highly important. And it should be considered as a matter of urgency. The idea of good outweighing bad or the concept of getting more than 50% in a good behavior exam is one of the greatest lies that Satan has sold the world. It is simply not true. Do we mourn over this or do we just excuse it by saying that it's normal? So what are our hearts really like? Jeremiah chapter 17 verses 9 and 10 says this. The heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful. A puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are. Not as they pretend to be. We can tell what our hearts are like by what we do. What is really important to us, what we value will drive our behavior. Our deeds are the symptom of our underlying heart condition. Fons Trompenar was a speaker I heard once on this topic. Uh, It was in a business environment and he was explaining the importance of agreeing values in a business, to get everybody who was an employee in the business to agree what was important, because that would drive their behavior. That would drive the behavior of the organization. And he used an example to show how values influence behavior. And he said, consider two mothers. Both have sons involved in car accidents, and both their sons have left the scene without admitting responsibility. Now, for one mother... She values protecting her family above everything else. Her family is the most important thing to her. For the other mother, she values honesty and justice above everything else. This is the most important thing to her. 
And what they value will affect what happens next. For the mother who values protecting her family above all else, she is more likely to do all she can to cover up for her son and in order to keep the family together. For the mother where honesty and justice are most highly valued, she is more likely to encourage her son to hand himself in and will not participate in a cover-up. So values drive behaviours. What the heart values, what is most important to you, will ultimately determine how you behave. And another way to tell what our hearts are like to to determine what our priorities are is to consider how we spend our time and to consider how we spend our money. So, just as examples, people who spend a lot of time playing sport, then sport is important to them. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. It's just important to them because they spend time doing it. People who spend a lot of money on their cars, then their car is important to them. Ask most parents what they spend their time and money on, and they will say their children. Again, it just shows that their children are important to them. None of these things are wrong as long as we keep our priorities right. And by considering what we spend our time and our money on, we can quite easily work out what is important to us, what our priorities are, and what we value. And this is why Jesus said, build up treasures in heaven. Build up treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he meant by this is what you treasure is what you value. It is what is important to you. And make sure your priorities are the same as God's heavenly values because that will drive your behavior. Your priorities will be evidenced by the way that you live your life. So do we build up treasures in heaven? If we want to assess how highly we value, how much we prioritize God, then we should look at how much time we spend with him, how much money we give him, how much time we want to spend with him in devotional time, in church, in prayer. Now here's a question. Why am I spending so much time on the condition of our hearts and minds? And the reason is because we need to guard our hearts and minds. It is the core to who we really are. The heart is the center of our being. It is where our values are determined. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. In the NIV it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And I think this one's from the message. More than anything you guard, protect your mind, for life flows from it. I think it's interesting to note that the verses that immediately follow Jesus' command to build up treasures in heaven say this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What do we fill our minds with? If we want to ensure our hearts and minds are set on heavenly things, then we need to feed them. And we should not be surprised when Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Doing this, dwelling on God's word, feeding our mind with these things is as important as eating. Don't do this and we will die. Is reading the Bible a priority? Is devotional time a priority to us? Do we do it? And if we don't do it, do we mourn over that? Peter Carriage is the chief executive of Premier Christian Radio, and he was in Belfast recently. And he talked about a survey that was undertaken in the Diocese of London. And the survey was amongst regular church goers in London. And the survey that revealed that on average, those who tend attended church regularly, attended once every three weeks. And for those who went to church, nine out of ten did not have a regular devotional time. This is a recent survey. Now, assuming sermons are 30 to 35 minutes, on average this means that a regular churchgoer in London is spending less than 10 hours a year focused on God's word. Compare that to how much time we watch television or how much time we spend on social media. Are we serious about our relationship with God? I know what a struggle this can be personally. My intentions are good, but I am often really poor at getting around to it. This was my rebuke in preparing this sermon. Have I forfeited the right to say that I love God when I am so inconsistent in my devotional time? Have I forfeited the right to say I love God if I am so inconsistent in my devotional time? Now, if I can say one thing that has helped me in this, where I am weak, is the, the Bible in One Year podcasts. If you're not familiar with them, I recommend them. They've, they've, they've helped me enormously. Billy Graham told a story of an Eskimo who owned two dogs, one black dog and one white. And each week he would take the two dogs into a town nearby and the dogs would fight each other. And the Eskimo would take bets on which dog would win the fight. Sometimes it was the white dog. Sometimes it was the black dog. But no matter what, the Eskimo would win the bet every week. And eventually the people in the town said to the Eskimo, how do you always know which dog is going to win the fight? And he said it was easy. The dog that I feed during the week wins, and the dog that I starve during the week loses. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be healthy, full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What do we fill our minds with? Because this is a good indicator of what our hearts are really like. Are we sorry? Do we mourn over this? Do we believe that this private sin really upsets God? Or do we think that he is just kind and will let us off? 21st century Christianity puts a very strong emphasis on love, on the, on the love, kindness, grace, and mercy of God. And God is all of these things. And it is good to dwell on these aspects of God's character. 
God is love. God is gracious. God is kind. He is kind. But he is not soft. A few years ago, I was involved in a very significant inward investment into Northern Ireland. The job I have is working for for InvestNI. And this U.S. company visited, and we rolled out the red carpet and did everything that we could to secure this investment. We had one of the best visit programs that we had ever organized. We met with the first and deputy first ministers up at Stormont. We took them to all of the great places to visit in Northern Ireland. And we offered them the maximum amount of money that we were allowed to under the legislation. And at the end of the visit, the U.S. executives said that we had done a fantastic job. And the visit program was one of the best that they had ever been on. They complimented everything they could about Northern Ireland. They were very gentle people. They were very kind people. But after the compliments, they simply said that they would not be investing in Northern Ireland. The financial numbers did not stack up, and the offer that we had made was inadequate. And on this basis... Northern Ireland fell short of their requirements. They were very kind people. They were not soft. There was a standard, and we fell short. Unless something happened, Northern Ireland would miss out on that investment. God is kind, but make no mistake, he is not soft. Consider God, the all-powerful creator God, all-powerful creator God. We cannot begin to understand how powerful he is, how holy he is, how perfect he is. We should fear him. This command is repeated throughout the Bible to fear the Lord, to have reverent respect for the King of Kings. We should fear him. God is good and God is just. And in that fact, we have our greatest comfort but we have made him our enemy and in that fact we have our greatest terror here is our problem God has set a standard it is perfection it is pure holiness and righteousness and we are not perfect do we even have a desire to be holy and righteous given all of the connotations that go with those terms in our society. Is that something that we even want? We are not perfect. We are in a hopeless position. Our hearts are desperately dark and deceitful. We are spiritually dead. We have no hope of ever reaching his perfect standard. The relationship is broken and we are separated from him. In our rebellion against God, We are destined for punishment. And this punishment is necessary to meet meet the requirements of his justice. The punishment is terrible. It is the result of sin. No one talks in the Bible more about hell than Jesus. And he makes several references to it in this Sermon on the Mount. Make no mistake, hell is horrific. It is eternity without God. It is eternity in the absence of everything that is good. It is the consequence of our sin. Now this isn't the most popular topic 
in, 21st, in the 21st century. But it is not one iota less true just because it isn't talked about much. Sin that has not been dealt with leads directly to an eternity separated from God. We are guilty of breaking the law of God. Justice demands a penalty, and there is no way we can pay that penalty ourselves. There is no way we can pay it ourselves. We are lost. But God was willing to pay it himself. And he gave up his only son to do it. And when we look at the the pain and the suffering of that cross, we see the consequence of our sin on someone else. Consider the humiliation. Jesus was naked on that cross. There was no undergarment as portrayed in the pictures of the crucifixion. It says in John's Gospel that the undergarment was gambled for, that the soldiers threw lots for it. Consider the torture and the brutality, the crown of thorns, the flogging. The soldiers who beat Jesus drove the nails into his hands, the spear into his side. The horror, the pain that he suffered. The horror and the pain that he suffered is still incomprehensible no matter how much we dwell on it. And this is a consequence of our sin on the creator God. God is not soft, but he is kind. And we can see the fact that he is not soft and that he is kind together in the price that he paid and what he did for justice to be met. And he stands with his arms open to us to welcome us back and say, and says, I love you. This is why it's called the good news. Because we were in a hopeless position, but he offered us the chance to be rescued. We've already sung this morning, who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. You alone can rescue. You alone can lift us from the grave. God loves us, and he has shown how much he loves us through the cross. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Now we are generally sorry for our wrongdoing when we see the impact that it has on somebody else. That's what makes us sorry. When we see the pain or the suffering that it has caused others or that we have let them down. And it is when we see the pain, the distress, that we have regret and that we have remorse. And it should be because this is the cold, hard reality, consequence of our sin. And we should have sorrow and regret for our sin because of the disappointment, the hurt, the offense and the cost that it has caused Almighty God. So what does true repentance look like? Firstly, There is true regret and remorse that the pain we have caused God and the damage it has had on our relationship with him. I have disappointed God. I have cost him great expense. 
The most precious thing to any parent would be an only child. And my sin required the death of the only Son of God. In true repentance, there is genuine sorrow, regret, and remorse. Secondly, true repentance should be evidenced by us turning back to God to depend on him. When we see the true horror of our sin, we should want to hate what is evil and love what is good. Be perfect, but we cannot be perfect in our own strength. Our hearts are so deceitful, and we've got to be humble and recognize that we need to depend on God. And in our sorrow, God will comfort us. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises to send the comforter. It's interesting that he uses those words, the comforter. In our sorrow, God will comfort us. The comforter is a title given to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come to comfort us if we are truly repentant. And it is only through the Holy Spirit that our hearts and our desires can be truly changed. Romans 8, 5 and 6. Those who, mind, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The expression of sorrow for my sin is not a one-off. Craig, when he was chatting recently about prayer, explained, explained recently how useful he found it simply to repeat Jesus son of David have mercy on me a sinner the recognition of my dependence on the Holy Spirit to bring me comfort and to change my heart is not a one off it is a daily continual attitude that needs to be practiced and cultivated and this has been a big lesson for me it is my prayer every morning every day and as often as I can make it my prayer throughout the day to continually depend on the Holy Spirit to change my heart to change my attitude to hate what is evil to love what is good to want to be holy to want to be righteous to keep my eyes fixed firmly on Jesus as the author and perfecter of my faith and let's just take a moment to see how this fits together Acknowledging the reality of my spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I am truly sorry and I mourn this condition. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning my spiritual poverty leads to a recognition that I cannot help myself. In my meekness and humility, I realize that I have to depend on God. Blessed are the meek. And in my humility and depending on God, he sends the Holy Spirit who gives me a hunger and thirst for righteousness. A hunger and thirst I did not have previously. It comes from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So in finishing, my experience of being comforted as a Christian is like this. I have a peace about my past. I have comfort in knowing that my sins have been forgiven. 
I have a power to live in the present. I have comfort in the real experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, changing my heart, changing my desires. I know what God's purpose is for me. It is to progress towards perfection. I know that I can't do that on this earth, but hopefully day by day I am getting closer. And if I am not, then I need to ask myself some hard questions. I know that I can't be perfect in my own strength. I know that I'll never be perfect on earth, but with his strength, I am being changed. And I have a promise of paradise in the future. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the sad. I have found this to be true for me. And my prayer is that I hope it's true for you. And if it is not already true for you, it can be this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.